Excuse me, Mr. Twain. What's that? The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. America, America. Let your new dawn lead to the final sunset on my people's suffering. Folks could use a little prosperity around these parts. <laughs> Mr. Twain, tis easy to see, hard to foresee, but I foresee the American adventure to continue a long, long time. W Radio, your information station. Welcome to the WDW Radio Show. This is episode number 22 for the week of July 8th, 2007. I'm your host, Lou Mangello, and I want to thank you for tuning in once again. This week's news and views from Walt Disney World segment starts off with confirmation of a long-standing rumor about Epcot, the Animal Kingdom Villas, July 4th ceremonies, new concerts, room rates, and more. The Walt Disney World rumor mill is full of exciting news about Jedis, more character enhancement, new shows, and a whole lot more. In honor of America's recent Independence Day and the recent update to the pavilion, Jeff Pepper and I will conduct a very detailed Disney scene investigation of the American Adventure Pavilion in Epcot's World Showcase. We will cover the history of the pavilion, the show, story, technology, backstage and onstage, the recent updates to the show, and the intangible qualities that make it one of the most moving experiences in any of Disney's theme parks worldwide. This segment will also include exclusive interviews with some of the people that make the pavilion truly exceptional, including a longtime American Adventure cast member that shares some of his secrets and details, as well as with the Voices of Liberty, part of the pavilion's pre-show that is a true wonder in and of itself. And of course... It's called a salute to all nations, mm -hmm. but mostly America. I have more of your voicemails at the end of the show, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. WDW Radio Show News and Views Report Live from the WDW Radio Studios in Scotch Plains, New Jersey I just returned from a quick trip to Walt Disney World last weekend for a few meetings, but I did find some time to head out into the parks. So we'll start off this week's news and views from Walt Disney World segment with a couple of things that I experienced while I was there. First, the new video screens are up in the Soren queue and they are amazing. There are four screens, each with a different interactive game that can be played by people in the standby queue. And I should note that people in the fast pass queue lines cannot see or experience what's going on on the screens. However, the guest response has been overwhelming, and as as I did walk through the Fast Pass queue, uh, you really could hear screams of laughter and people having a great time echoing through the Great Hall. 
What I'm understanding from cast members is that they're often now finding to have to tell guests to move along because they're so involved in the games and the different kind of games you can play. And uh, it's something that, that individuals and groups can participate in. There's, Like I said, there's four different games, one of which um, lets you kind of let, let plants grow in different areas, while another one uh, has to deal with uh, making a bird fly by everybody kind of moving their arms and, and moving back and forth. So uh, very interesting, very excellent use of the technology. I think this is something that, uh, depending on how it could be modified for other cues, we may see in other places throughout the parks. Over at the Disney MGM Studios, construction is still ongoing at the Toy Story Mania building. Uh, as we reported earlier, the source of Mickey Gre- meet and greet has closed, and it's expected that it will be it will take up residence at a new permanent location over at the Magic of Disney Animation uh, in the in the Animation Courtyard. For the most part, the street is deserted, except for the couple of trailers that they do have some character meet and greets from JoJo and the Little Einsteins. But I will upload some photos to the WDWRadio.com show notes page so you can get an idea of exactly how construction is progressing. Okay, so the really big news this week is one that is probably enthralling to Epcot purists and one that um, confirms a rumor that's been going on for some time now, and that is that the 257-foot-tall Mickey Mouse arm, glove, and wand will be coming down over Spaceship Earth. And I wanted to bring on, again, Jeff Pepper from 2719hyperion.blogspot.com to kind of talk with me a little bit about um, this, this breaking news story. Pretty, pretty amazing, because this, this, this rumor has been twisting and turning and been all over the map for the last year or so. And, uh, you know, it... The minute one person would say, oh, it's definitely going to happen, you know, the next person would come out and say, no, it's not. And even when the Siemens announcement came up a few months back, the actual, you know, spokeswoman for Disney at the time kind of just sort of didn't come out and say anything definite, but she definitely alluded to the fact that it was going to stay at that point. Yeah, I mean, like you said, the rumor kind of, you know, would get fueled every so often. And over the last maybe month or so, uh, it it kind of got legs once again, and I think I may have mentioned it once on the show, but you know you can't mention it all the time because it's one of those things that just keeps coming back. Uh, I mean, like the like the change of the of the name of the studios and and different things here and there. But this week, uh, Epcot President Jim McPhee uh, said that it, it it the time has come and, and it's time for the wand to come down. It's been up since 2000 as part of the Millennium Celebration, and work actually started on uh, or it will start on Monday, July 9th and will be completed before the park's 25th anniversary. Again, not acknowledging that anything's necessarily going to happen there um, officially with Disney, but on, on October 1st, the wand should be down. And uh, what basically I'm understanding is that it, it's basically coinciding with not only the sponsorship of Siemens, but the closing of the attraction itself as part of the refurbishment that's going to go on, which should, which should um, be finished probably by November. Yeah, they're definitely taking advantage of the killing two birds with uh, one stone on this and sort of minimizing anything, as you said, that this, you know, that way if they decided a year or two from now, they wouldn't be shutting down that, probably that left-hand walkway is going to have to be totally closed off for the duration of its dismantling. Right, and that's what I would assume. And, you know, like a lot of things, the major things that happen at Walt Disney World, this is one that instantly fueled, um, you know, an incredible amount of, of, of feedback and commentary and very passionate commentary um, on a lot of the forums and blogs and things like that online. Yeah, everybody has a fairly strong opinion about it. And it seems that, you know, most of the the passionate Disney fans were happy to see it happen. Um, There's a few 
who were indifferent and then another few that were just almost saying that they're just glad because the passionate Disney fans will now be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, 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 it caused a lot of uh, interesting uh, commentary and debate. You know, it, I, I, I couldn't really get a sense of the, the people that were very pro-Wand. I could never necessarily get a real good, strong sense of their arguments, though, I have to say. Well, I, you know, some people, I think, criticize, um, I guess myself included, for being nostalgic and being a purist. And for me, it was really less about just removing it for the sense of nostalgia as it was removing it for the sense of symmetry and aesthetic uh, beauty that I think uh, it, it kind of detracted from just a little bit. I thought it was a nice addition for the millennium, but you know, like even Disney said themselves, it was time for it to go. Um, it was there for the special event and it was time to go. Um, I didn't need to see it say Epcot on it. I think that for some reason it, it added... Um, something that that took away from i think the original in, intention of epcot or maybe that the feel of epcot for me and and again maybe that is over being overly sentimental um but there was something about just just the the icon just the ball itself uh, by itself that, that i really really enjoyed and i look forward to seeing again yeah i i agree and it was i i was never i never hated the wand i mean it was it was what it was it was it was not unlike the you know the pepto-bismol cake in in 90 um 96 and it was it was you always had the impression at least for the millennium celebration that it was just a temporary kind of thing it had that sort of new year's new year's eve party kind of look to it you know and you just assumed that that's what it was so yeah i was equally surprised when it when you like you said they changed it to epcot and and kept it around my objection to it is more more in the realm of i think what people lose sight of is that they're so wrapped up in in Spaceship Earth, the icon, and that when the wand was added, it sort of enhanced, like the people that liked it, liked that enhancement of the actual icon. This is this is all Epcot. But they kind of lose sight of the fact that Spaceship Earth is Spaceship Earth. It's an attraction. It, it communicates what it is in the inside. Um, Spaceship Earth was intended to be a representation of Earth. It, you know, if, as you know, everybody who rides the attraction knows, we are, we are journeying on our Spaceship Earth. And in that regard, you know, when you're journeying on your spaceship Earth, you don't got this big Mickey Mouse hand attached to right. you. <laughs> and and so I think in that regard, it you know, we wouldn't necessarily take something like this and stick it on top of Space Mountain or have it, you know, hanging on to the uh, the mining buildings of Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. So in that regard, I, I never quite understood the necessity of, you know, keeping it on. It just it's not an aesthetic fit to what the attraction spaceship Earth is. Right. And you know, we talked, um, you know, between you and I offline about this, about maybe why it stayed up as long as it did. And it could be a money issue. You know, we, we do understand the fact that um, Epcot specifically is very, very corporate driven. Uh, maybe there's just no occasion to do it. This is the first time that Spaceship Earth has gone down for any sort of a meaningful refurb. So they said, OK, this is the oppor- opportune time to do it. Maybe have has outlived um, how long we expected it to be there. And we thought there would have been an opportunity earlier. Now let's just seize it. Um, it has nothing to do with the fact that the 25th anniversary is coming up or anything like that. Um, it, it's just good timing and, and the fact that they knew, do have a, a, a new corporate sponsor. So there we have it. So it's we're, we're going to get a, uh, a 1999 prior look at the way Epcot was before. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what the over-under is on how quickly the little... Um, the little red sparklers and things like that start showing up on eBay. So, <laughs> and you say little, I have to probably what about twenty feet in diameter. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I I would uh, 
tell you to, by all means, you know, go to the forums over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com and weigh in. But I know you, many of you uh, already have because this is something that, um, that really has sparked uh, a lot of discussion and debate. But uh, it is what it is, and the wand will be down uh, presumably by October 1st. And again, uh, don't forget to go and visit Jeff's blog over at 2719hyperion.blogspot.com. Thanks for having me, Luke. Last week, more than 1,000 Florida residents from 100 different countries became American citizens on the 4th of July at the Magic Kingdom. The participants, who ranged in age from 2 to 60 years old, were welcomed by Walt Disney World President Meg Crofton and singer Gloria Estefan, who sang the national anthem. Disney actually broadcast a live webcast that I was able to catch, and despite the rain and not being there to see it in person, it really was a moving experience because really we're better to receive the greatest gift our nation can bestow on a person than at the most magical place on earth. Uh, This is the first time in Walt Disney World's 35-year history that an immigration ceremony was held over at the Magic Kingdom, although ceremonies have been held at Epcot before. Now, the idea for holding the ceremony actually came from a Disney cast member who became an American citizen recently and thought it would be a great part of Disney's Year of a Million Dream celebration. I, of course, could not agree more. Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge Villas opened to DVC members last week and appears to be quite beautiful from what I understand. Construction is still ongoing to convert the fifth and sixth floors of the lodge into DVC properties. Now, as I mentioned in a previous show, portions of the resort are temporarily closing and Disney is relocating guests or offering full refunds. So if you do have plans to stay at Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge, there is a chance you might want to call Disney ahead of time that they'll either have to move you to another part of the property uh, or give you the opportunity to either cancel your reservation in its entirety or move to another resort. The schedule for the Playhouse Disney Concert Series was released by Disney this past week. These concerts, aimed at toddlers and preschoolers, is going to run from August 30th through October 28th and includes performances by the Imagination Movers, who will be there from August 30th to September 2nd, the Doodle Bops from September 6th through the 9th, Playhouse Disney Live on Tour from the 13th to the 16th, the Imagination Movers come back in between September 20th and 23rd, Choo Choo Soul with Genevieve comes in between September 27th and 30th, and again between October 4th and the 7th. From October 11th through the 14th, your kids can see Ralph's World between the 18th and the 21st, Johnny and the Sprites, and rounding out the concert series is Dan Zanes and Friends from October 25th through October 28th. According to Epcot cast members, Japan's wonderful Mitsukoshi Teppanyaki restaurant will reopen under a new name, Teppan Ito. Now, if you're a fan of the Teppan style of cooking, have no fear, as the type of dining experience will remain the same, however the name will be changing. It's, assu- it's believed that ownership will not be changing, only the name. The Matsunoma Lounge and Tempura Kiku are being replaced by a sushi-centric restaurant to be called Tokyo Dining. All these renovations may be completed by the end of the summer season, but could possibly be extended as needed. Finally, listener Darren Whitko sent me updates about the new Disney room rates. He says Disney is offering what's called the August to September rate on select resorts. Value resorts are being offered for $69 on most days between August and September, select moderate resorts at $104, and Saratoga Springs and Old Key West at just $169 per night. Darren said he contacted Disney about these rates and was told that some of the rooms are sold out, especially for Saratoga Springs and Old Key West. 
but they have expanded the offer. So for example, they were able to offer him Saratoga Springs for just $2.69 a night, which is still a great rate for a villa-style room. If you have any questions or think about traveling during this time, I suggest contacting Disney directly or a travel agent, such as the Magic for Less Travel. You can find a link to their website at the WDWRadio.com website. There you can find more information about the actual rate as well as get a no-obligation quote. And uh, that's going to do it for this week's news segment. If you want to comment on anything, if you have any news that you'd like to report, by all means, please send me an email to lou at WDWRadio.com. first story in this week's rumor mill could almost be reported as news because it does come directly from Disney. However, because I don't have all the information and details as yet, I'm going to report this as rumor, but there is a new show that's going to be coming to Epcot. According to Disney's career website, on July 27th from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., Walt Disney Entertainment is seeking male and female performers for a quote-unquote a new show coming soon to Epcot. There are two themed hosts who will work in tandem and will be physically active. In addition to being clever and personable, they also must be skilled in scene improvisation. Comedic improv actors must be at least 18 years of age and should be prepared to read from a side and participate in improvisational work. Now, my guess, if I had to be a guessing man, and I am, is that this uh, will likely be something that's going to go in Probably not in the future world. More likely it's going to be one of the promenade shows in one of the countries in Epcot that you can see um, throughout all the different pavilions. There's also something else that I noticed on the site, and it's called the Story Walkers. And it reads, Traveling troubadours share stories they have collected from across the lands to share at Disney's Animal Kingdom. The Story Walker is a female dancer with strong acting ability, as well as the ability to tell stories through word and energetic physical movement. So it looks like there's going to be a lot more of the guest interaction and guest involvement interactivity that you're going to see not only in Epcot, but more likely over in the Disney's Animal Kingdom as well. Now, do you like this segue, but you want to kind of take it up a notch? Well, now you can go off-road at the Fort Wilderness Resort as they have recently launched a new Segway test program where you can go off-road on the new Segway X2 off-road model. The program runs Tuesday, Friday, and Saturday, twice daily at 8.30 and 11 a.m. for guests 16 and up, It costs $65 per person and is two hours long. The uh, 10 guests can participate at one time in a 45-minute training period, followed by a one-hour and 15-minute period out on the trails. It's unclear as to whether or not this is going to be something permanent or it's going to be a test program. Uh, Because of that reason, that's why I'm reporting it here as rumor, but you should call ahead in advance if this is something that you're interested in. Something else I did see on my trip to Walt Disney World was the Jedi Training Academy, right to the left of the big Adat Walker over at Star Tours at the Disney MGM Studios. It looked like it was a lot of fun, especially for the kids. They were in full Jedi regalia on what appeared to be a temporary stage with a uh, kind of a a vinyl banner backdrop and obviously a cast member leading them along. Uh, According to Matt, you know, Mr. MGM Hotchberg, Disney has filed plans with the Orange County Comptroller's Office to begin construction on a new permanent stage for the Academy. According to the plans... The stage is going to be built not where it is now, to the left of the uh, entrance, but where the Endor Village currently is. Now, I'll put a link up in the show notes to the uh, description of the project, but it says to, quote, design, engineer, construct, and install an outdoor stage reminiscent of the Imperial Bunker on Endor from Star Wars. 
Sounds very cool. I wonder how it's going to change the outside area and facade of Star Tours, but now I only wish they had something like this for adults. So it appears as though, even though Epcot's not going to get a, a formal 25th celebration per se, other than maybe what we do on the show and other websites around the internet, the rumored upgrade and enhancements to the Illumination Earth Globe may be coming just in time for October 1st. Epcot cast members told me this weekend that the globe may be taken out of service right after the busy summer season for the upgrades so they can have it back in time for October 1st. Speaking of other upgrades, look for some other upgrades to some of your character friends all around the Walt Disney World Resort. Much like the enhancements to the Dream Along with Mickey performers whose mouths and eyes move, you may start seeing new characters with the same animation around the holiday season. Look for Pluto, Chip, and Dale, as well as a couple other characters, to be much more animated, starting at the very first 2007 Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party on November 12, 2007. You may also see a similar enhancement at Timon over at the Festival of the Lion King show over at Disney's Animal Kingdom. I'm sure we'll hear and see more as uh, these characters start to appear, if they do appear, uh, in and around the theme parks. And if you happen to catch any of the new characters with the animated mouths and eyes, by all means, please send us over either some photos or some videos, and I'll be happy to put them up in the show notes. And as always, if you have anything that you hear or want to contribute, send an email or call the voicemail, or we'll go ahead and talk about it over at the WDW Radio Message Forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. Now, Lou Mangello and Jeff Pepper take you in search of the clues behind the Disney magic in another Disney scene investigation. This week's DSI Disney Scene Investigation, I of course want to welcome back Jeff Pepper from 2719hyperion.blogspot.com. Hey, Luke. How's it going today? Good, good, good. Jeff, uh, for this segment, you know, we're going to talk about two things that I personally am very, very passionate about. And it's not just my love of Walt Disney World, but my love of America. And for that reason, I think we're going to take what, what's probably going to be a very unapologetic, likely overly sentimental look at the beauty and the majesty and the incredible sense of patriotism that comes from the America Adventure Pavilion kind of to coincide with the recent July 4th celebration. And now, just so you know, I didn't do this last week because I knew I was actually going to be in Walt Disney World last weekend on a last-minute trip for some meetings and things like that. But I did make it a point to get some time in the parks and see the new show, and I wanted to make sure I included it in this piece. So, um, Jeff, I'm, before we kind of get started talking about the, the pavilion itself, um, I think this is one of these experiences in Walt Disney World that elicits emotions, you know, from me and others like no others. And even if you're not an American citizen, you, you can't help but be moved by, you know, the imagery and the music and the symbolism that, that you see in the pavilion. It's, it's, it's amazing because it's one of Disney's premier attractions. Uh, the effort and the work that went into it and... The ultimate realization of what it is it is it is one of the longest presentations being close to 30 minutes 
and just the, one of the most extensive pieces of entertainment they've ever put together for a park. It's 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 amazing, and again, it it touches on a very sentimental and moving level as well as you said. Yeah, it it um, my experience this weekend at the Billion was wonderful on, on a number of levels. Number one, because I did get to see the new show, and I also had this incredible opportunity to meet up with somebody that knows the pavilion and the history and the details that permeate through it. It's a cast member. His name is Lonnie. He's been there for a number of years. Um, He does this great pre-show narration during the kind of downtime between some of the pre-show things and the actual start of the show. Um, He was gracious enough to spend about three hours after the park closed kind of going through the attraction, doing a real on-site Disney scene investigation. And, And we'll kind of, I'll play a little bit of audio from Lonnie later on. But um, let's kind of talk about the pavilion itself and the history of the pavilion before we actually get to the exterior and the interior and the actual show. Because the uh, the genesis of the American Adventure Pavilion um, actually has a, a pretty long history even before you know the park came to be. Yeah, it, it was pretty much about six years from start to finish. Um, in the early planning of Epcot Center, um, an American pavilion was always something that was definitely distinctly planned. And Randy Bright, uh, he's a Disney legend. Um, sadly, he passed away in an, an accident in 1990. He was the show producer on American Adventure, and Randy had quite the reputation as a really terrific Imagineer, very, very talented. And he was interviewed right um, a couple years prior to his death, and he talked about the show. And one of the things he said was that they went through what he called six abject failures before they got to a concept that they really, really were comfortable with and which they felt ultimately served, you know, what they wanted to get across. And, you know, one of the examples uh, he gave, you know, to give you an idea about the broad range of ideas that they were considering was it was a ride-through. There was an American Adventure ride-through that was kind of more akin to something like Small World or even um, El Rio del Tiempo, which was very happy, very lightweight, uh, audio-animatronic vignettes, and basically had different more comical characters throughout American history, such as Ben Franklin or Paul Bunyan, singing patriotic songs. Yeah, because you know that Ben Franklin was quite the comedian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and, 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 and in fact, in fact, the scene, um, the, the scene, there's some pre-production art um, out there that's you know, and it's basically the the comical, of course, classic Ben Franklin vignette of him flying the kite, and those were the things that they were kind of you know trying to do in that regard, but. Um, Ultimately, they, they decided they wanted something more theatrical in nature, and that's kind of finally when they landed on basically the whole sort of theatrical presentation that they have now. Yeah, I mean, it, it was imagine being the Imagineers and trying to decide how to present a, a history of America, and, and this is just one of the changes that they had to make. I mean, we'll talk about the location of the pavilion and the design of the pavilion itself, but how do you properly represent, you know, with the proper reverence and respect... Uh, the pavilion and you know make it entertaining and make it educational and do what it does and I think what they came up with is probably so much better than something that's just a ride um, because it's not like it's El, El Rio I think is a perfect example it's not a tourism piece it's not a you know a, a funny kind of thing it really is an evocative show and, and also they, they had a very distinct challenge because they had to make it very distinctly different from the Hall of Presidents in um, the Magic Kingdom, because even though the, the focal point of the Hall of Presidents, you know, is the final scene, you know, where you see all the presidents and they're introduced, there was still quite a fairly lengthy preamble to that actual scene where they're sort of doing sort of a, you know, Cliff Notes version of American history. Well, this really, I mean, 
it's not really a movie. It's not, you know, a ride. It's it's really a play. I mean, it really is a play set in 3D with, um, you know, with art and with music and with animatronic figures instead of, of live actors. Yeah, I, I kind of, I've always kind of thought about it as, as just what you said. It's a stage presentation, but with very cinematic sensibilities. Exactly. And and it's a true multimedia experience. I mean, it, it, it hits you from all angles, from... You know the pre-show and what you see there, uh, all the way through, obviously to the to, to the climax of the of the final uh, golden dream sequence. But you know we were talking about the changes that came to the pavilion. Uh, the other problem that Imagineers ran into was where do you put it? And originally the location was going to be, um, well, let's kind of even go back, way back when when they were looking at World Showcase, all the nations were going to be located in a single semicircular building. Um, and that was when it was actually adjacent to the, um, I'm sorry, Seven Seas Lagoon Contemporary Resort area, close to the Magic Kingdom, correct? Right. And, you know, the, the, the point of this was all the, uh, all the nations wouldn't be competing for, for, store, you know, for frontage space. Everybody would have the same, um, same area um, in the front, but they can go as far back as they needed to go. Once that changed and, and they decided to go and move Epcot to where, you know, where it is now with the whole Lagoon model... Uh, the American Adventure Pavilion was not only going to look very different, but it was also going to be located at the entrance to Future World. And actually, you'd have to walk through the American Adventure Pavilion. The, the story would really be, uh, the attraction would be on the second floor, and you'd have to walk through the first level into World Showcase. And, and that kind of went through a number of different machinations as well. At one point, it was going to be um, a large circular building. It was going to be uh, a large glass structure. And what they decided to do was, for a variety of reasons was to move it to the opposite side of the lagoon and still act as a draw for people to come around to, to bring them across to the other side of the promenade. So this probably is a good time to talk about the building itself and the exterior uh, because there's so much to it and there's so much great detail and, and good information. And I guess, we, Jeff, the first, th- first thing maybe we should talk about is the design of the building that they ended up deciding to go with. So what they decided to go with was a representation of a colonial-style manor house, or what the Imaginaries like to call America's Mansion. And you'll see the, the Georgian styles found out, you know, that was really prevalent throughout colonial America. And, and the Imaginaries really felt that this time period really defined who we came to be. And you'll, you'll find the same style, uh, even the America Gardens Theater across the promenade, um, which actually wasn't there when the pavilion first came to be. But you'll see this kind of theming um, and style throughout and it's important if you look very closely jeff you'll see the building is obviously it's three stories tall but then again it's not yeah it's actually um it's actually closer to five stories tall um it's it's an example of what you would almost call reverse force perspective uh because of the scope of world showcase being so vast and so large they needed the building from across the uh, the lake to appear much larger than it actually was to make it really stand out as the central point of World Showcase, and so in that regard, they had to actually, you know, enlarge it in that in that way. Right. Well, all the pavilions in World Showcase, none of which are taller than five stories, and even though we are the host country, it was very important to Imagineers that no special uh, deference or treatment be given to the American Adventure Pavilion. So yes, they they wanted to take this five-story building, but make it look as though it's only three stories tall. And it, you want to try something really cool? If you go and stand across the promenade uh, near the America Gardens Theater. Stand someone with, with their back to the building and get an idea 
of his height relative to the building and have him start walking closer and closer to the building. And you'll notice how the doors and the windows, especially on the first level, really start to dwarf him because they're so much larger than uh, the normal doors. The other thing too, Jeff, you mentioned about um, kind of this this dramatic look from a distance. The one thing that they did do, although they didn't actually change the, the, the size of the building, they did actually build it at a slightly higher elevation than the surrounding pavilions. So it's even though it's only five stories tall, it still looks like a three-story building, but it does actually appear to be taller than the, the two pavilions around it. The other thing that's really important about the pavilion too is the use of color. And the colors were, were really of paramount importance when they were designing this. And uh, John Hench was a master uh, of colors, and colors were very, very important to him. The man knew his colors very well. And if you look very, very closely, Jeff, I think this is something else people probably don't realize. You'll find red, white, and blue everywhere on the exterior of the pavilion, from the flowers in the gardens to, obviously, the buntings, things like that. But even the building itself, you know, if you look very closely, stand across the promenade, the promenade pavement is red. There's white accents all over the building itself and on the marquee. And there's the blue roof and the, and the blue sky. Uh, and like I said, even all the flowers are always red, white, and blue. I, I've noticed that with the gardening. And, it, and it's amazing when you bring it up because it is that attention to detail, yet it's an attention to detail that they want to get across to you subtly and not overtly, you know, or hit you over the head with. And it, it's an amazing, when you do stop and take take a look and see just how much it's there and how pronounced it is. It's really something to see. Yeah, and if you ever get a chance to, to pick up John Hench's book, um, he really goes into a long dissertation on colors. And even this pavilion itself, you know, you might say, well, they just use white paint on the outside. There's actually four different shades of white. You'll get some of the warmer whites on the bottom to blend in with the bricks and a kind of a more stark white on top to complement and accent the blue shingles. Um, and I yeah. guess this is where I That's should his imagination. I'm sorry, that's his animation background showing. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, that, that attention to detail. Uh, the building itself, the roof shingles are actual slate. They are not plastic tiles. And the bricks, there's actually 110,000 custom-made, uh, handmade red Georgian clay bricks. Um, but we're talking about details, and there's something that people always point out to me, and I know Lonnie said people try and point out to him all the time, is the clock. And people say, well, you know, the clock on the pavilion is wrong. Uh, because there's a mistake on the clock and there's a mistake on the flag. Well, the mistake on the clock that people try and point out all the time is that the number four does not use the modern Roman numeral four. It uses four I's instead of IV, but that was actually customary in the time. Um, so actually the clock is right. And the flag, Jeff, as you know, does not have um, the proper number, at least the current number, of stars and stripes. Yeah, it's 15, and that is, again, paying homage to the time period in which it was made. Right, and back during that time, when the U.S. was first formed, pl flags, what they were doing was they would basically add this, the same number of stars and stripes as the worst states in the Union. But as the number of states that joined the Union grew, it obviously became impossible to continue adding stripes. That's why our current flag has 50 stars for every state, but just 13 stripes representing the original 13 colonies. When we talk about the Hall of Flags inside, you'll be able to see more examples of these flags. Um, inside. And one little detail outside that I think is pretty neat that I think a lot of people probably walk right by is there's two windows flanking the doors on either sides of the exterior. They have bronze busts in there of two figures and they're uh, Ben Franklin and Mark Twain who are your hosts as well as six smaller figures that represent some of the different spirit of independence and things like that. Uh, very, very beautifully done. Uh, really nice and again just one of those little details 
that I think people uh, people might miss. But let's go ahead and let's head inside because this is where the, some of the real beauty and great story of the pavilion really comes to be. And obviously, inside the rotunda, you see on the exterior walls, there are a number of paintings and a number of quotes uh, that you really should take your time and walk around and go take a look at. And they usually have... There's a gallery right beyond the entrance where you actually go through, where they usually do typically do special presentations, correct? Right. There's Right now, um, again, this, this was something that wasn't there when the pavilion first opened. Right now they do have the American Heritage Gallery. It's showcasing something called the Echoes of Africa. Um, there's about 15 or 20 pieces of um, a collection of African art, a combination of, of the Walt Disney and the Tishman um, art collecting, which is really the largest privately owned collection of African art in the world. Um, the, the pieces kind of rotate through. Actually, what's coming up next uh, is going to be National Treasures, which is obviously named after the Disney movie. But these are obviously going to have real, you know, historical um, treasures and things like that. But if you ever had a chance to look in the Echoes of Africa, um, it's pretty neat because something people probably don't realize when they go in is you'll see two similar pieces of artwork next to each other. And what they do is they take an old... Um, They'll take an old traditional piece of art and they'll match it with a modern art piece. Something, you know, they might, uh, there, there's in the window now, like there's an, uh, a sculpture of an antelope head. And then there's another sculpture of an antelope head made out of bicycle parts, um, kind of marrying the modern and the old. But around the, the, the uh, perimeter of the pavilion, like I said, are paintings and there's a number of quotes. And uh, the, the paintings are absolutely beautiful and they're amazing because each one of them tells a story. And if you look very closely, you'll see artists like Sam McKim and Clement Hall and Herb Ryman. Um, and if you look very, very closely, you'll realize that oftentimes the quotes that are near them kind of tie into the paintings. Um, and something neat that you should do, and if you have a chance to talk to the cast members that work in there, try and look at the paintings and figure out the time frames and the locations and the messages that they're t- trying to convey. And we'll talk about Lonnie later on. But ask Lonnie to take over to the B-17 bomber painting because there's something very, very special, something very unique about that. Um, it's kind of got a unique special effect um, to it. Um, there's also all the quotes, and there's people like Jane Adams, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for social work, Charles Lindbergh, uh, Althea Gibson, who, who's a relay race runner, Walt Disney, uh, of course, um, was placed in there. But again, something you should stop and take a look at and, and really take the time to read. And, and again, this is this is a good opportunity to uh, repeat our oft said, you know, don't go commando, take your time as you're saying, because the the great thing about American Adventure is typically you have time. It's not something that you know they don't fill the theater up unless you know you're there at very very peak times. So when you go, wander in to the lobby and do exactly what you're saying to do because. I, what I find is there's, you know, there's always the cast member right there at the door, and I've seen people that will walk up and they'll say, you know, how much time till the next show, and they'll say 15, 20 minutes or whatever. Uh, we'll turn around, we'll go find something to do and come back. <laughs> you know? And it's like, there's plenty to do. <laughs> there is you know, plenty and, as you've just, just very distinctly illustrated, and I'm just amazed that there's so much to see. I find I'm always running out of time before the show starts to, as I'm wandering around. This is one of the pavilions, and I'm, I keep mentioning this cast member by name because he is exceptional, and, and the man knows more about the pavilion and, and its history and American history than anybody I've ever met. But get there early and talk to him because he will take the time to walk around with you and explain to you and, and give you a really in-depth narration. I mean, I learned so much in the three hours that I was there 
you know, I was talking about the ties between the paintings and the quotes. So, for example, there's um, there, there's a painting of um, uh, a Native American, and uh, there's a, a, there's steel workers in construction, and there's a, a large gentleman in in the forefront, and he says, "Well, do you know who that's supposed to represent?" And I said, "No." He says, "Well, it's supposed to represent Native Americans' contributions to." the construction of these skyscrapers and gives me a very, very detailed backstory um, that's probably much more interesting than if I tried to <laughs> convey it here. But uh, it, it's really, really incredible. And, and look at the, um, um, you know, look look at the furniture. Now most of it are re- reproductions. At one point they did have some original antiques in there that obviously got either stolen or worn through time because they actually do a lot of corporate events and special events in here in the rotunda this is one of these places that you can rent out and have private parties or wedding receptions and uh actually if you go upstairs and uh to the second floor mezzanine and you look down if you look at the tops of the columns you'll find some confetti kind of stuck there <laughs> from from some of the things <laughs> actually here's a, here's something else he pointed out the tops of the columns and forgive me i don't know what the architectural name for is but the tops of the columns are turned wrong they're supposed to be turned sideways and instead they're kind of facing uh, perpendicular to the to the angle that they're supposed to be. So people who are more familiar with architecture might might be able to pick that out. But um, speaking of forced perspective, Jeff, the uh, if you look up the dome, it's got a very very grand dome inside. It's actually only ten feet high, but but through the use of forced perspective, looks much much taller. And actually, the entire floor to ceiling is only around thirty five feet. And and directly below that is the center point and. It is the home of one of what I consider, again, one of uh, the treasures of Walt Disney World. And Perfect is, segue. You, Perfect segue. I thought that would, be, that would work. <laughs> the, the Voices of Liberty uh, singing group. Yeah, there's actually three pre-shows that you can really catch. You can catch a Spirit of America fife and drum corps, and you get, you know, inauthentic colonial garb. Um, they, um, they really do this, this great, you know, percussion-based musical tribute to early America. There's American Vibe, um, who has kind of a, a swingy, gospely sound. And my personal favorite, and I agree, it's an absolute hidden treasure. Uh, it's a hidden treasure to me inside a hidden treasure, and it's um, it's the Voices of Liberty. And I think they, they really are. And, and people say, a lot of people think that they are the attraction. That's what people come to see. And actually, when yeah, I... It, I'm sorry, go ahead. There's, I just, I, when I went to see it the last time when I was there, you know, you had the people that actually know the process of sitting down <laughs> in the circular area where they're where you typically when the, the the members of the group come out they will direct the people to come in close sit down on the floor and kind of line them up and you know you, you already have sort of your your cult fans right there right, ready and waiting for them they are absolutely spectacular and they are moving and i had a chance while I was there to talk to one of the lead singers, who's Krista Anderson Abbott, on my last trip. And uh, let me go ahead and play a little bit of audio that I took in my interview with Krista.
they tell us a little about who the Voices of Liberty are and what exactly you do here at the American Adventure? Well, we're a, a nine-person a cappella vocal group, and we sing Americana, folk music, and patriotic music, Songs of America, um, seven days a week in the American Adventure at Epcot. And uh, that's our job, and I tell you what, it doesn't get better than that. Well, you, you not only make people smile, but, but you can see... The people who are gathered here in the rotunda, you know, half the people were smiling, half the people were choked up with tears. It's, you know, I can't think of a better job where you come to work and you can bring joy to people and you can make them feel proud of their country. And, and we all share in it all together right here to be proud to be Americans and sing this music of America. It doesn't get better than that. How long have you been together and how long have you been here at Epcot? The Voices of Liberty have been at Epcot since it opened. So over 25 years, somewhere around 82. So you've been doing it since you were three? Exactly. <laughs> I haven't been in it the whole time. I first started myself 17 years ago. It was the first time I was in the group. And then I did other myself, other shows on property and what have you, cruise ships and stuff. And then I'm back in the group again. So kind of get moved around like puzzle pieces sometimes. But some people have been in this group since its inception. So... Great way to make a living, I'll tell you that. I was going to say, there's probably, you know, this has got to be, if you have the talent, obviously, and you you're all are incredibly talented, to be able to do what you do every day is just incredible. You know, we're, we're very blessed. I, I, what else can I say but being lucky, blessed to do this for a living. Mm-hmm. Well, and we're lucky, too, as guests to be able to experience it. Um, for people that enjoy the music, is it can they only experience it here at Epcot, or do you have CDs or, or some other way to? We do have CDs. Um, they sell some here at the gift shop at the American Adventure. And you can also, of course, do a, uh, a Google search or something like that and look under Voices of Liberty or Liberty Voices also that gets switched around. But there are CDs out there available, and you can find them. But they're here. Well, come see us at the American Adventure and then stop by the gift shop. One-stop shopping. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a wonderful show. It's a moving show uh, with July 4th just around the corner. It's even more so appropriate that I get a chance to talk to you now. Thank you very much. Again, this is the Voices of Liberty. And you, uh, How many times a day? Seven times a day, seven days a week. Come on down. In full, <laughs> in full, absolutely beautiful, uh, beautiful costumes as well. Thank you very much. Keep doing what you do. We will. We will, and thank you. Thank you. Take care. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, this is one of those things, Jeff, that, you know, people, they're so powerful and they're so moving. Um, And I'm going to play another clip, another little bit of live audio that I took from them. But uh, they really are a show in and of themselves. And if you want to find out more about them, too, you can go to libertyvoices.com. You can buy their CDs and find out a little bit more about the the group there. Yeah, they're just just simply amazing. And, And again, you know, if you stand outside and stare at the sky, you're... You're missing something, you know, waiting till the last minute to go in. Yeah, the, the way their sound just resonates, you know, throughout um, throughout that building and inside that building, uh, it's something definitely that, that you should really experience. So, but anyway, that 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 is just the pre-show uh, because from there, you're going to go upstairs uh, to the actual theater. But before you do, you're going to enter something known as the Hall of Flags, and you're going to take an escalator uh, through this Hall of Flags um, to the second floor. Um, and in this Hall of Flags, there are 44 different flags that were flown over the United States uh, territories throughout our history, through the Revolutionary War and the Colonial when the states came to be. Really an incredible, amazing collection and diversity of flags. And, and there's actually foreign flags as well that had actually flown at various times when people laid claim as well. Right, there's the there's a King George III flag, there's a Betsy Ross flag, there's the Star-Spangled Banner flag, and that's kind of the one that 
um, that hangs over the pavilion itself. And that, that flew from about 1795 to 1818. That's the one with the 15 stars and stripes. Um, that actually inspired Francis Scott Key to write the poem that ended up being our, our national anthem. You'll see if you look very closely, and again, don't take the escalator, take your time, walk up. You'll see a Mexican flag and a French-style flag because they actually claimed ownership of some regions of the country. You'll see um, a Russian flag that at one point flew over Alaska, uh, a royal Hawaiian flag because it was a kingdom before it was a state. You'll see some military flags. Uh, interesting in Leela, and something that people ask me all the time, there's no Confederate flag in the Hall of Flags. Um, based Disney very carefully defined the categories that... Uh, that would qualify to, to become a flag, and there is no Confederate flag flying there. And when you get to the top, um, when you get to the top of the escalator, before you go into the actual theater itself, uh, take a walk around the, the second floor a little bit. And if you look um, on opposite sides, you'll see these giant, three giant eagle plaques that are, that are floor to ceiling, these giant metal eagle plaques. And if you look very, very carefully, you'll see that they're actually air vents. They're, they're, they're for air intakes, and that's kind of the, the functional purpose that they serve. But um, let's talk about the theater itself, because the theater itself, too, has lots of great details. Again, so much to see before you actually see the show. Um, when you walk into the theater, take a look down at the carpet. You'll see the carpet that was specially woven for um, the pavilion. When you walk in, the eagle heads on the carpet, they face the stage, and when you walk in, as you walk out, they face the exit. Uh, the chandeliers are beautiful. They weigh about 180 pounds each and can actually be raised and lowered to uh, to be cleaned and change the bowl. But obviously, Jeff, the thing that people probably pick out immediately when they walk in are the different Spirit of America uh, 12 life-size statues on either sides of the theater. Yeah, they and they they play a role later. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's you know you know you're it's it's that's like, I think my favorite part of it because after seeing the show you know for the first time. When you come in again, you know that they're just not there for set decoration. They actually become a part of the overall presentation. Yeah, and it's really interesting because if you look very carefully, you'll see that um, they represent things like individualism and innovation and compassion and discovery. They are not meant to represent particular people from history. So, you know, while the aviator very well could be Charles Lindbergh um, and the female doctor could very well be Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell... Um, there really was, Disney was very careful not to specifically point out an individual because they want guests to be able to interpret who they might be or allow them to kind of may, represent a certain person or a, somebody each, to each individual guest. And uh, actually, a lot of these people, a lot of these figures are actually posed by ima- people in Imagineering. <laughs> they were, you know, Imagineers that they used um, as models. And if you go over and, and tap on them lightly, you'll see they look like marble, but they're actually made out of fiberglass. Yeah, they're very striking. Uh, they're one of the, like as you said, they're they're just an amazing part of the theater itself. Yeah, the only one that I think, and when I was talking to Lonnie, uh, he seems to feel that it really is meant to represent somebody. Is um, there, there's an African American uh, figure that that really seems to represent George Washington Carver. It seems just the similarities and kind of the details of the statue itself and the objects around him seem to really represent. Um, him but when you finally Jeff when you finally take your seat and you see this stage I mean the stage is absolutely massive and this is one you know I know everybody has various preferences um, 
as to where when they go into the various theater presentations at Disney World, you know, where to sit in dead center or back row, front row, you know, you know, which which gives you the best vantage point. My personal preference is as close to the front as possible. Um, you know, the the back of the theater will give you somewhat of the scope of the presentation, but I just I really enjoy sitting up close to see the detail in the anime, the audio animatronic figures. Yeah, and we're going to touch on the, the figures themselves a little bit later on, but you're right. I agree with you 100%. Sitting up close, you don't lose any of that perspective, but you really get an appreciation of, you know, uh, Mark Twain smoking and, you know, the, the little kind of movements by Thomas Jefferson and the, the shaking of the hands of, of Franklin and Twain and things like that. But the, the, the stage itself and the sets itself are, are could almost qualify as a wonder, because of the mechanism that's used to change these scenes and move all the figures and get all these sets into place. Good. Yeah, the theater itself, the, the, the mechanism of the actual theater stage that you know, moves the audio animatronics around and switches out the scenes was actually developed prior to the actual scripting of the show. They, they knew that they wanted an audio animatronic presentation and they knew that it was going to involve a combination of uh, multimedia and the scenes and uh, sets changing out. So they actually came up with the conception of the theater first. And it's, it's interestingly, it, it's been nicknamed the War Wagon, but according to what you just you know, told me you know, offline, that uh, that wasn't actually something that the, the Imagineers wanted it referred to. Um, but that's kind of what it's been nicknamed in a lot of uh, making of texts and articles and such. Yeah, and speaking with, uh, with Lonnie, we were talking about you know, the, the, the engineering marvel that is this scene changer because it's huge. It's about the size of a railroad boxcar. Uh, it's about 65 feet long by 35 feet wide by 14 feet high. Weighs 175 tons. And, and the, the mechanism that, that moves it is absolutely amazing. And if you go and take the backstage magic tour, which I highly recommend, it's about seven and a half hours, you can actually get to see this. Uh, you won't see it in operation, but you will see it. And, and you'll see the technology that, that goes into it to kind of make... There's 11 different sets that it moves backwards and forwards and up and down. And, you know, the, the, the space that's taken up for this is more is, is bigger than the actual seating area for guests. So when you go into the theater, look at the expansive area that you're sitting in and imagine it being even bigger just for this scene changer. And, yeah, the War Wagon was actually, um, the, I guess, a nickname given maybe by cast members um, named after a 1967 John Wayne Crook Douglas film. Uh, and it was called The War Wagon. But... Um, according to Lonnie and other cast members, the Imagineers do not like that. Um, they don't like the, the connotation. They don't like the reference, maybe because the movie was a, a comedy film. It was a comedy western. Um, but, but they do not refer to it as that, according to, to him, internally. Yeah, and that's, in, that's interesting because in the interview I was referring to with Randy Bright that I'd seen, he kept referring to it as the magic theater. It was, you know, the, the whole mechanized component. And as I said, you know, they developed it prior to the, uh, the actual scripting of the show. And that kind of leads into just the type of show it actually is. You know, we were, we were talking about how it, you know, is this combination of so many different types of presentation. It's, it's, it's got, you know, theater, it has film, it has music, multimedia, everything combining in. What just, as I mentioned before, what really just impresses the heck out of me about the whole thing is how they made it cinematic. How, you know, how... You're, it's almost as if you're watching a movie and the scene will pan up or the scene will pan down. And that was very specific to how they developed, what, as they were calling it, the magic theater. They wanted there to be a synchronization between what was going on on the motion picture screen behind you know, the action, behind the theatrical sets, 
so it would synchronize with the actual sets moving, going either so- you know right to left or up and down. And you'll notice in various portions of the show, um, you know, the scene will go down, you know, and I'm trying to think of a specific example. Um, I think there's one where uh, J- Chief Joseph, you know, the, the you know he descends down, but it's actually the effect of the camera panning down to where you're just seeing sky. Mm-hmm. Am I making sense? <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense to me because I just saw it, and I'm you've sure it, it yeah. right. <laughs> but but it's but that's what you know. And there's there's the scene. One of the very remarkable scenes where this synchronization takes place is um, the scene where Frederick Douglass is on the raft on the Mississippi, mm-hmm. and he's actually staying fairly stationary. But the simulation of the movement and the, the combination of the the screen and, and such, he actually, you know, you're, you're, they're trying to make him go across the entire screen, but he actually ends up panning right back to where he came from. It's an amazing effect, and you kind of take it for granted until you really stop and think about it. Yeah, and you know, you talked about the storytelling, and maybe this is a good time because it, it, they use a very unique style, and, and it kind of starts off at the very first words that you hear uh, because they tell the story not necessarily through all the characters you see on stage, but by using the words of other people to tell their story. So, for example, the very first thing you hear are words of John Steinbeck, and that kind of carries through the show. And, you know, the scene with George Washington and Valley Forge isn't told by George Washington. It's told by the two soldiers, the two kind of everyman soldiers. And the Civil War isn't told by Civil War leaders. They're told by two brothers that are going to fight on opposite ends of, of, of the war. So it was a very unique, very conscious choice, and I think it just works. Uh, this thing works so so well. Again, yeah, and, and another very very good example of that is the Great Depression scene, mm-hmm. which actually that scene transitions from the beginnings of the Great Depression in 1929 all the way through the end of World War II, <laughs> right. and it, it literally encapsulates that whole you know almost 20 year period but with the dynamic of very four very common gentlemen mm. sitting on a front porch of a gas station. All right. And if you listen very, very carefully um, to the, when they turn on the radio and there's a news flash about the war, there is no mention of the Japanese being a part in the war or anything like that. They, Disney, you know, very specifically did not want to, you know, offend anybody, you know, that, that may be offended, whether they be Japanese or whatnot. So it was another one of those very conscious choices and little details that they made sure that they put in, in there. And that scene is—it's—it's it's interesting. You and I talked about it as well. We were both kind of comparing notes on it. That scene uh, of the Great Depression and the four gentlemen, um, very much a rural location at a gas station, was actually almost totally lifted from an actual magazine photograph that appeared in Life magazine. It—it um, it was just almost literally they staged the entire scene exactly as that photograph uh, had been taken. Yeah, and this is something that, um, that scene and there's another scene in there that were, were supposedly taken out of Life magazine, uh, and we have yet to be able to find, I know uh, Lonnie the Casmer has been looking for a long time, trying to find this scene from the Great Depression has, and has not been able to, to find it, but here's my one little bit of geeky trivia. If you look at the banjo player, uh, if you look at his, his costume, and we'll, again, we'll talk about more about the animatronic figures, but... Um, his shoes were not something that was created by Disney. It's not something that Disney created. They were actually found in a condemned relief mission in Los Angeles. And Disney just kind of found them and thought they were perfect and, and put them on them. I read about that as well. <laughs> so, um, all right, let, let's go ahead. and I guess maybe this is a good time to kind of talk about the animatronic figures because the ones that they use here are some of the best ones anywhere and some of the effects that they 
that they give to these figures are, are some of the best anywhere. Um, these, um, the designs of the figures are, are very unique, and, uh, and you'll see, you know, there's three Ben Franklin figures and three Mark Twain figures. Um, you know, Valley Forge, you've got Washington's horse, you've got Frederick Douglass, Chief Joseph. Um, ben Franklin at one point was the most sophisticated one they had ever created, um, and the, the ability to make him kind of walk up those stairs and the very subtle twists of his body and, and the hands and the mouth really took the technology of audio animatronics to the next level. And this is something we discussed when we discussed animatronics as one of uh, the seven wonders of Walt Disney World. Yeah, Dave, uh, an Imagineer named Dave Fighton was the Imagineer that was responsible for doing a lot of the programming, and he specifically programmed uh, Franklin and Jefferson, and he, he specifically talked about the scene where he literally himself um, rehearsed walking with a cane up the steps countless, countless times to just get that sequence of movement down. And at the time, that was probably one of the most innovative things that had ever been accomplished with um, animatronics was um, actually um, Franklin walking up the steps to the loft. And the other interesting um, note that he had mentioned um, when he was being interviewed was that when he was programming Jefferson, he was saying that how the technology was still to the point where just the unexpected could happen. And he he had a funny mention of basically, you know, Jefferson as he's sitting at the table with his drafts all over the floor and such his arms actually got caught under the table and he said he literally flung the animatronic literally flung that table <laughs> all the way across the room and it totally shattered into pieces yeah i mean like i said even though the 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 technology may have been surpassed by by things like lucky and hopper um and this is another reason to sit up very, very close because take a look at Mark Twain as he blows smoke from a cigar and Will Rogers, when he twirls that lasso, that really is the animatronic twirling a lasso. That's not some sort of a stage special effect. The other, the other, we'll, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the, other re- <laughs> the other reason to sit up close too is because for the first time, Disney actually put um, speakers and individual voices in the animatronic. So as opposed to being played over speakers throughout the theater, you actually get a sense of, of dimensional speech coming from the actual characters themselves. Yeah, and as you're saying with the scene there with Will Rogers, it's very impressive because it is that dynamic of the four gentlemen in the center at the gas station and what they're listening to is being simulated at the various opposite ends of the stage, you know, with Will Rogers um, doing his radio speech or his radio performance, uh, Roosevelt giving his um, famous um, day of infamy speech you know they're they're countering back and forth and as you said that's really distinct because the voices are very well directed from those points right and this is why the show works so so well it's not only the details of the animatronic figures but it's the combination of the figures and the 3d scene changes and the multi-plane film that that the kind of the figures almost kind of fall in and out of like you were like you were referencing before it's like Watching them, it's like seeing a movie and almost having characters come to life and come up out of it and rise up in three dimensions, and and that's why the show works so so well. Another another very very I think that's it's you, you take for granted, but to me, it is something that just really is so important to the success of the show, and that is the voice acting of the people that perform the various voices. Um, the gentleman um, Dallas McKenna um, performed Benjamin Franklin. And I've talked to people about this, and here you have a historical figure who basically there is nobody alive that has any conception of how this gentleman spoke. Yet 
the voice acting that McKenna did is just so dead on to what you would think Franklin would sound like. Uh, his performance is just that perfect. It just it just really gets the essence of what you think Ben Franklin was or who you think Ben Franklin was. And what's really especially um, interesting about it is that he is someone who is kind of a veteran of uh, Disney voice work and he's done a great number of things in the park but very very different from Ben Franklin in fact uh, the, probably the most recognizable voice that people would would hear would be he does the prospector on uh, the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad and in the early years he did one of the voices I, I'm not sure which one but it was one of the voices of the bears in the country bear jamboree and that but I've, people told me that they subsequently switched that out at some point and replaced it for some unknown reason with another voice voice actor yeah when I was talking to Lonnie Dallas actually had come in and you got to remember most of these voice actors don't get to see the show until they actually you know the shows are up and running and he came a number of years after the show had started and uh, he actually Lonnie had a chance to, to kind of you know take him through and kind of uh, sit with him and said the man I mean who was un- unfortunately passed away uh, a few years ago was just moved to tears uh, not because he thought his performance was so great but just the, the 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 show itself and what it had done he was so proud of that work um, he had ended up you know writing a poem about it and, and kind of got up and, and talked to some of the lucky guests who were there to actually hear him uh, you know talk about the experience of being um, Ben Franklin but you know in talking about Franklin in The Host and talking about uh, Mark Twain as host, one thing that we failed to mention early on about changes to the pavilion, what was the, the infamous third host that, that never came yes. to be? Yeah, that that was an interesting story. And actually, it was another story that Randy Bright touched on, um, was that they, they wanted to tell the story sort of in three parts, you know, the 18th century, the 19th century, and then finally the 20th century. And for they had conceived originally for there to be a host for each each century, and of course, you know, Franklin was the initial, um, sent, you know, the 18th century, and Twain was the 19th century, but they had intended Will Rogers to be the um, host of the 20th century. And what they found, though, was that they were just concerned about, you know, be having somebody be that host for a century that still was not quite completed and so very close in memory to so many of the people that would be ultimately viewing it. And the interesting thing that they did was they were concerned about Will Rogers, so they actually went to a college campus and they surveyed 150 political science students. And of that 150, I believe it was only uh, three or five, I'm sorry, five students knew who he was. Yeah, that's, <laughs> and, that's awful. <laughs> and, and, and so literally, you know, Bright said that they, they had an upwards of almost 300 different individuals that they were considering you know, to play that part of that the 20th century host, and they ultimately realized that it just they just couldn't do it. They just could not necessarily single out one individual, so they ended up just going with the two hosts. Right. Well, they make a good point. You know, we're too close. We're too close to the time period. You know, maybe 50 years from now, 100 years from now, people can look back and and select somewhere that may be a good representative for this this century. But right now, I know you know they said Walter Cronkite was one of the forerunners. Um, you know, people would probably scream, well, Walt, it should be Walt Disney. Well, maybe Walt Disney isn't the best person to represent, you know, America um, for 100 years. And I'd be curious to see what other people thought about who they, they think might be um, that, that good third host or, or who would have made a good third host. But, um, yeah, supposedly this, this is something that got very heated among Imagineers about who they wanted. And, and um, as they got closer, there'd be a discussion and an argument about so. Uh, I think it obviously works, you know, just the way they have it. 
something else that is such an integral part of the pavilion and the show is obviously the music. Um, and, I, and I think the music here is some of the most beautiful and moving music anywhere in, in Walt Disney World. Um, the Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra uh, performs um, the music in there. The, the soundtrack um, inside of there at the time was one of the most advanced digital sound systems Disney had ever used. Um, obviously, the songs in there are, are things like New World Bound. That's during the Plymouth Rock scene. The Days of 76 through the Revolutionary War. Two Brothers, I'm sure we all know that, um, telling the Civil War story, the two brothers. Brother, Can You Spare a Dime uh, in the in the gas station scene. I'll Be Home for Christmas, when you have Rosie the River. And obviously Golden Dream, which is the anthem of the pavilion that's sung during the film montage and the show finale. That um, uh, was by Rainy Bright and uh, Robert Moline. And a little bit of trivia in the, I believe, the first version of the show... You mentioned the I'll Be Home for Christmas sequence. I think they actually had the song Rosie the Riveter actually overlaying that to begin with. You know, you might be right. i got to pull out some of my old... Um, it just might be stuff. Of it. <laughs> it just might be stuff. <laughs> um, there, there is one other aspect of the pavilion um, that I do want to mention because we're going to talk about the whole pavilion in this Disney scene, and that's the dining. And the only thing they have, this is my only disappointment about the pavilion, and I've said this before, is the Liberty Inn. It's a fast food eatery. Um, You know, it's hamburger, hot dogs, chicken fingers. The argument is, obviously, well, you can get those everywhere throughout the parks. On the opposite side of the coin, it's, well, that that is traditional American food. And if maybe people from out out of the country come over, that's what they expect. They expect hamburgers and hot dogs and chicken. and, And what else would you do? You know, you can't do some sort of you know, modern Asian fusion, Bobby Flay, Southwestern thing, because it's not representative of the entire country. But I think they make up for it with the funnel cake kiosk outside. (laughs) Nothing beats fried dough. (laughs) When it lands on your hips. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, there's also a shop there. There's there's a Heritage Manor gift shop where you can get different kind of Americana items and and you get the Voices of Liberty CDs in there. Um, They have some pretty unique, cool kind of Mickey, you know, flag-waving hats and shirts and whatnot. Um, but the other thing we should maybe touch on, Jeff, too, are you, you talked about the Rosie the River scene because there have been two basic updates to um, to the pavilion on the show. And 1993 was the first one. That's where, if you remember, the new audio-animatronic figures were brought in. And this is when they first start to use that, that compliance technology that we talked about in our Seven Wonders segment. Um you can see much more realistic movement um, compared to the very kind of static and stiff of the old versus the new. You kind of compare the two and you see such a, a real leap in, in technology there. And that was where they also updated the final sequence to bring it up to date for the, you know, little over the first decade of it being opened. The one distinct addition I remember there, and I know there was quite a few, but the one very distinct addition I remember was Jim Henson. Mm-hmm. And I believe the hockey was was that the hockey team also added, and that's the the Olympic the, hockey team. Was that already? Was that already? And I'm getting my dates confused. Oh, you're out there on your own on this one. I have no idea. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> that's, well, well, that's we were, Jeff when, Pepper at. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, and, and we and we got our grief over the the, the shuttle thing. So I, I rescind, you know, my historical knowledge of the the hockey team right now. Please don't <laughs> and yell at me. Well, more importantly, and again, this is why we're doing this this segment after July 4th as opposed to before because I did get to go down because in June of this year 
was the second major refurbishment, and this is where they were adding basically the last 14 years of American history to the f- finale. And uh, having seen it, I, I am, like I said, unapologetically going to say that it was an incredibly emotional and moving thing. And I, I had something in my eye for for most of the um, for, for most of the of the, of the finale sequence. Um, the kind of the post Vietnam part of the song has been extended. You have George Lucas in there with C-3PO. Uh, you see Ronald Reagan. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, The Fall of the Berlin Wall, The Challenger Crew. Um, the AIDS segment now has Princess Die instead of Ryan White and Magic Johnson. Of course, there is um, reference to 9-11 in there. And it's it's really, it's a heart-wrenching thing, but there's no, it's, it's, it was, it's important to note, there's no crash sequence, there's no plane sequences at all. More importantly, it focuses on the heroes from the fire and police departments. Um, there's a very nice tribute to the men and women of the armed forces with signs of support the troops being displayed. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of sports stars, I noticed. You have um, Muhammad Ali carrying the torch during the 96 Olympics. Tony Hawk, the skateboarder, which I thought was an, uh, an interesting choice. Uh, Tour de France winner, more importantly, cancer survivor, creator of the Livestrong campaign, Lance Armstrong. Um, Tiger Woods is in there. Michelle Kwan is in there. It was very nice to see the images of uh, George... Herbert Bush and Bill Clinton working together on, assumedly, the Katrina hurricane relief. Um, but they did some other things, too, to kind of help squeeze some of these other figures in there. Was You, you saw, if you kind of compare apples to apples of scene by scene, you'll see some of the scenes have been altered, whereas there used to be transitions between things like Jonas Salk, and then you see the boy on crutches. Now they kind of sh- a lot of these scenes would kind of be meshed together, so they would show up together, um, evidencing how they kind of compacted the film but one thing I noticed online, Jeff, and I don't know if you, you, you picked this up, was there have been some criticism of the film appearing grainy or out of focus, and, and Disney didn't do it right. Well, here, here's the reason why, and, here, and Disney is going to be able to fix it. Um, the Imagineers, when they shot the film, they didn't get to see it on the big screen until it actually came to the pavilion because they didn't have another 120-foot screen laying around Imagineering anywhere. Uh, but because it now is completely digital, they're going to be able to fix that focus and some of the scratchiness and things like that. So you'll see over the next coming weeks and months, um, any of that graininess is going to definitely go away. And actually, that's and you brought that up, is that was what we were alluding to when we first you know walked into the theater and we were talking about the various statues, is that the theater itself is you know initially when you're watching it is 72 feet wide but then at that dramatic finale when after the you know the film montage when uh mark twain and ben franklin return on the statue of liberty you know it it opens up for the big dramatic uh finish and the sky winds out to encompass the entire area behind those statues and it extends out to be 150 feet in length as you just mentioned yeah it's it's just amazing and this is kind of i guess you know, we're all get all sappy and talk about some of those intangibles, um, you know, about the pavilion and the show, because it, it really is so much more than just it's more than just a show about America. And unlike other pavilions, it's not about tourism in America. It's about our history and, and our triumphs and some of our failures. And, you know, I guess the patriot in me comes out. It shows the importance of our freedoms. And it has not, it's, it's not political at all. It's done so well because it shows more about what unites us as a people and how important it is for us to understand and appreciate our history so that we can understand and appreciate what we get to enjoy um, today. You know, and, and like I said, I, I had a little something in my eye when I watched that final scene, and it really does fill you with that sense of, of pride and, and patriotism and you get to appreciate some of the sacrifices of the people that, that preceded us 
and uh, allows us to enjoy things like our freedoms and the American adventure. Yeah, and, and what's, what's kind of, you know, I've, I found interesting is that I've read criticisms of the show, um, with apologies to Len, uh, you know, in the unofficial <laughs> guide, there's a number of Dang. anecdotal, you know, entries from from guests who think it's overly sappy, or, and there's especially criticism, you know, I even, you know, somebody identified themselves as a teacher and said, oh, this is a whitewash of, of history, and it, it's kind of and a little bit disturbing because, you know, Randy Bright said that they went to such great lengths to avoid that. They they wanted they, he described the show as actually when they wrote the show that it was, you know, highs and lows, and you know they wanted to show a very balanced portrait of our history, you know. So you know you have, you know, slavery, you know, coming, you know, into a low and then coming up to a high point where you know we, you know, as a people, we you know conquered adversity, you know, we made it through, you know. And it just, it, it's, I, it's kind of amazed me that I, I'd never in the entire time that, you know, in the 20 plus years that I've enjoyed the show, it, I never really saw it as something as disingenuous or just, you know, something that was just, you know, overly patriotic to the point of just, you know, totally disavowing anything that was even remotely negative. And like I said, when I, when I saw the interview with Randy, he was very sincere in saying that, you know, they really, really tried hard to make it as genuine, but as honest as possible. Right, and, and it's important, you know, it, it's how you want to focus, and it's how, you know, you, look, you very they very easily could have focused on negative things, and but I think they did it tastefully. They, they did talk about some of our failures and some of the things that ended up defining us as a people. But like you said, there is such an, a great deal of reverence and respect and passion um, that transcends the building from the exterior through the show, through your the way out, and everything else like that. You know, I was talking to Lonnie, and I, and I mentioned those three giant eagle plaques up on top, and we were talking about things like hidden Mickey's. And there's a in the bottom right corner, there are three circles that very well could be interpreted as hidden Mickey's. And we both kind of agree that you know, Disney wouldn't do something like that here. It's not that's not what this pavilion's about. It's not meant to be funny or hokey or jokey and then there have been cast members that have lost their jobs because they have made jokes at the end of the thing that weren't necessarily in bad taste but just not representative of what the pavilion's supposed to be and i think the show i think the pre-show i think everything from top to bottom really evidences that that love of the country and the passion and the respect um that it so well deserves it has easily been long one of my very very favorite attractions in all of walt disney world and it's it's funny it's one i don't do as often as i would like to or should um it's always a matter of timing you know if you're i'm a victim of the very commando style sometimes that i criticize when you're doing that loop around (laughs) you know world showcase and you know oftentimes i do go and say i don't feel like waiting 25 minutes and then i regret it i really i really regret it and this last trip i said no i i really want to see it it had been it had been a year or so a year or two i think since the last time i now, regrettably, I, I, I wished I could get down as quickly as possible to see the update. Yeah, I, I think the update is, is really, really very well done. I have no criticisms, and I was happy to see Walt Disney and Tinkerbell um, are still in there. But um, it's a show that I think that you need to experience, and I think you need to experience it more than once. And, you know, like all of World Showcase, and Jeff, this is obviously something that we try and do we, we so hard on this show is you need to take your time and, and examine and appreciate the pavilions from the inside and the outside. It's not just about 
getting to see the show and getting to the next pavilion or, or, or running to what's next is about really appreciating those details and, and you know, get there early and enjoy the Voices of Liberty and look at the exhibits and talk to the cast members. I mean, especially in World Showcase, talk to the cast members because they would they, they love sharing some of these details. I don't mean trivia about the number of stars on the on the floor. Yes, there's 50, but I'm talking about some of the things that we're talking about now and, and Again, I, I keep mentioning Lonnie, um, who, who really is, is an exceptional, exceptional cast member. Um, he, he's a font of knowledge and, and a very nice guy. He took me, like I said, Jeff, for three hours after the pavilion closed and really took me through. And, and I gained such a deeper appreciation of, of, of the pavilion and the stories and, and everything that goes into it. Um, every little detail. And actually, I took a little bit of audio with Lonnie um, that I did want to share with you now, but I, I recommend... Definitely go in, and if you can, uh, go and try and meet Lonnie when he's there and, and talk to him. But uh, here's a little bit of, of my conversation with Lonnie at, at the American Adventure Pavilion. No piece all about the American Adventure would really be complete without talking to somebody that knows it probably better than 99.9% of us out there, and that's Lonnie, and he has been a cast member at the American Avenger for coming on five years. Now, Lonnie and I, I've just spent about two hours kind of doing an, an after-hours um, incredible tour of the pavilion, and Lonnie, I want to thank you for doing that for me, and welcome to the WDW radio show. Oh, it was my pleasure. I enjoy sharing information when guests arrive because it is more than just a pavilion. There's all kinds of things here to notice and observe, and uh, I think it enhances any guest experience when they come. If they take the time to look and enjoy something in our pavilion besides a bench and the singers and the air conditioning. Well, there is so much more here, and so much of what I try and do on the show is make people come and stop and look and learn while they're here, because especially this pavilion is such an evocative and emotional thing. And I think a lot of people, they come in, right, and they might hear the Voices of Liberty and go into the show. But there's so much more that goes on both outside and inside the pavilion. Why don't you tell us some of the the really unique, very special details, um, especially here in in the rotunda? All right. Well, first of all, let's say that as people approach the pavilion, they often ask, is this building a replica of some building in the United States? And the answer is no, it is not a replica, but rather it was designed to resemble a big colonial house, such as one you might see in Boston, Philadelphia, or Williamsburg, except that our pavilion is five stories tall. So to create the illusion from a distance that it's just that it's a big two-and-a-half, three-story house, it is still being five stories, everything on the front is oversized, but in proportion to make it appear that way. And before the American Garden Theater was constructed, this was sort of like the castle at the end of Main Street. It was going to draw people over. And uh, the clock tower on top is patterned after the one on Independence Hall in Philadelphia. The flag which flies outside is a 15-star, 15-stripe flag, which officially flew from 1795 until 1818. The roof is covered with real slate shingles, not plastic, and the facade is covered with 110,000 bricks, handmade of red Georgia clay. They didn't go to Lowe's and buy a bunch of bricks. And there's some interesting details in the way the bricks are arranged. As you enter the building, you enter enter this beautiful rotunda area, and it was inspired by one of our early president's homes. Thomas Jefferson's home in Virginia, Monticello, was the inspiration for the design of the rotunda. And he was an architect himself. He also designed the library at the University of Virginia. Loved columns and domes. So that's the inspiration for our rotunda area. 
And then around the rotunda area, the Imagineers decorated with two components, quotations and paintings. The quotations are by Americans about America, poets, patriots, philosophers, politicians. And there's a quote from one movie producer over on one of the walls. I think a lot of our guests would recognize his name. The paintings on the walls were all done by Disney artists in 1982, the year Epcot opened. Each painting is signed and dated as such. And each painting illustrates a different pioneering spirit of America. And as you walk around, you can see what stories they tell about our American heritage. And each painting has some unique detail to notice and observe. And uh, be more than happy whenever the guests come, if I'm here, to show them a couple of those details. For example... What story is the teacher reading to her students in the education painting? Are all the mechanics men working on the B-17 painting? Uh, what did the Native American Indian recommend the pilgrims put into the dirt to make the soil richer for the crops to grow? Little things like that to notice and observe. And there, you're right. There's so much story behind everything that you see here. And one thing that, that's unique that I, I think is only unique to you um, that you do here sometimes is while there is a gap sometimes in time between maybe Voices of Liberty and the show starting, you kind of give guests a little bit of this detail. You kind of take them through and do a narration about some of these things. And it's absolutely incredible the, the added experience that you give to truly one of the highlights, I think, in all of, of Epcot. Well, I have often had guests come back and say, we've been here many times and we never noticed or we never knew that. And uh, that just makes me beam because, uh, again, I've helped enrich their experience and help them appreciate. One of the phrases that uh, cast members use a lot is to preserve the magic. And I have kind of changed that. I said, I think it's fun to observe the magic. And even if it's revealing a secret, maybe, uh, that how Imagineering did something. But when you appreciate all the work and effort and creativity that went into the many of the pavilions here at not just Epcot, but at Walt Disney World in general. And it's, uh, I, I think that, again, enhances and deepens their appreciation of what is available here. You've just pretty much synopsized what I try and do and what we try and do on the show uh, is to enhance the guest experience when they come here and, and make them take the time to not just walk through the promenade on World Showcase, but take time to experience each of the pavilions and all that they have to offer. And I think you do a truly exceptional job. Uh, you love what you do. You know you know, such an incredible amount about this pavilion and the history behind it. And some of the things that I learned in the two hours we just spent here tonight were, were absolutely fascinating. So I highly recommend for anybody to come, look specifically for Lonnie, go talk to him. If you this is the first you've heard of him, tell him you heard about him on the show and, and take some time. He would love to sit around and... And don't forget to put a plug in for our new Golden Dream sequence installed just last Friday. It's been brought up to much more contemporary times with some new personalities. Uh, some of the older ones are not there anymore, but uh, history has moved on, and uh, so is our Golden Dream sequence. So last Friday, we had the special privilege of Rick Rothschild, the original show director back in the early 80s, was here, and he presented our new uh, enhanced, expanded uh, Golden Dream sequence. So come and see what new personalities to put in there. See how many you can recognize. And I have to say, you know, as as a American and a patriot, and even if you're not, I have to say, having seen it just a few hours ago, it truly is, is an evocative and a moving experience. And uh, 
No video of it you could see online, no audio you could hear of it could accurately reproduce the experience that you have by coming here. And I, and I, and the American Adventure Pavilion is an absolute must-do, not for the air conditioning, but for the experience. It's a must-do when, when you come to Walt Disney World. So, Lonnie, I want to thank you for taking the time with me tonight, showing me everything that, that there was to see here, and for taking time, um, helping me with my listeners, exposing them to, to what else there is to, have, to, to see and hear at the American Adventure. It's been my pleasure. I look forward to meeting your listeners in person. Thank you. Now, another thing that I did, too, was I did take um, some audio of the entire new show. And I didn't want to just play it on the show. But what I will do is I will make it available in the download section over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. You can go there, click on the downloads link, and I will put it up there. Uh, I didn't take video for two reasons. Number one, I didn't want to get thrown out of the park. And number two, I want you to be able to really... I want you to go and experience it for yourself because a video of an attraction, especially like this, will not do it justice. Uh, and I think you should should go and see it and really, you know, take it in. And if you can, go see it more than once and take your kids to see it. And if you've seen it before, don't say, well, I've seen it once. I don't need to see it again because I think you do, not just for the updates, but because it's something that you should revisit uh, time and time again. Okay, so I, I will step off my American Adventure soapbox and, um, like I said, hopefully I didn't get a little too sentimental and a little too nostalgic but uh, as you can tell Jeff I, I love the pavilion not only as a Disney fan but um, as an American fan <laughs> and you know it, it would have been pretty close to one of our seven wonders maybe it didn't quite make the cut but in my book it would have been pretty darn close yeah I agree and uh, you know some, oh, something else I forgot to mention if you get a chance 99.9% of the people I think don't even know it's there if you look behind the American Gardens Theater there's a boat docked out there that you can't go on. It doesn't go out. It doesn't do anything. But it's called the Golden Dream, obviously named after the uh, the Pavilion's theme song. You should definitely go and, and take a good look at that because it's actually um, a beautiful, um, I guess it's really nothing more than a prop, but you should go and check out Golden Dream. So um, I'm going to put some pictures up and some, um, some links up in the show notes. Um, so, Jeff? Yes, in, in addition, Lou, let me just add that. Um, when I talked about earlier about the um, the concept artwork for the other renditions of uh, American Adventure, I will post those on my blog as well, so we can uh, redirect some people there as well. Great. And, of course, as always, the show is interactive. I want to know what you think about the pavilion, what you think about, if you've seen the updates, what you think about it, um, who you think may have, could have been a good third host uh, for, to represent the 20th century. You can go ahead and, and call those in as a voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. We're sending an email to Lou at WDWRadio.com. Jeff, thank you again for all your help, buddy. Always a pleasure, my friend. Sail on freedom's wind, cross the sky.
Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. I want to thank you again for tuning in this week, and I hope you enjoyed the show. I also want to say thanks to Jeff Pepper from 2719hyperion.blogspot.com, as well as my special guests, Lonnie, the cast member from the American Adventure Pavilion, as well as Krista Anderson-Abbott from the Voices of Liberty. Go see them both at the pavilion and visit libertyvoices.com for more information about the group. Please also visit our show notes page at wdwradio.com for more information, links, and photos, as well as links to previous episodes of the show and our merchandise shop. Don't forget that the first of our Walt Disney World Marathon Contest Challenges is still going on, so be sure to listen to last week's show and get your entries in. They're due by July 11th, and remember, this is the first of our 13-part Walt Disney World Half Marathon Challenge, where you get to play a new challenge every two weeks for a chance to win all kinds of great prizes, as well as get to name the respective mile marker during the Walt Disney World Half Marathon in January. Like I said, there's lots of great prizes and new challenges in the coming months, so be sure to stay tuned. We have a couple of very, very special things planned. Also, don't forget that this is really about raising money for charity, as Eric Hollister, who's the owner of Geomouse.com, is generously donating $100 per mile to the DisneyWorldTrivia.com Dream Team Project to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. To learn more about the Dream Team Project, visit DisneyWorldTrivia.com slash Dream Team or click on the link on the WDWRadio.com website or visit Geomouse.com. If you are planning a Disney vacation, please also visit our friends over at The Magic for Less Travel for a free no-obligation quote. I give them my highest recommendation due to their free service, commitment to outstanding personal service, and giving you the best possible prices and discounts. Visit the WDWRadio.com website for a link to the Magic for Less website. On upcoming shows, don't forget we have more fun Disney scene investigation, lots of vacation planning information with the help of some of our special guests, more trivia, your emails, ongoing contests, factor fictions, continuing in the seven wonders of Walt Disney World, and so, so much more. Next week, I'm going to be at the Magic Meets event in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So if you're going to be there, I look forward to meeting you in person. Don't forget that I still want the show to continue to be interactive. So send me email to lou at wdwradio.com. Call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW or come by the forums at DisneyWorldTrivia.com for discussions about all things Disney. And of course, if you like the show, please help spread the word, review the show on iTunes or by voting for the show or clicking on the dig button on the WDWRadio.com website. Again, thanks for tuning in again this week. I really do appreciate you coming back. Have a fantastic week. See ya! Hey, Lou, it's Evan from Boston. I'm in the Magic Kingdom right now in front of the closed gate for Haunted Mansion, and there's a big sign on the gate. It says, My dear guests, we're terribly sorry, but I'm afraid the Haunted Mansion is closed this summer for renovation. Meanwhile, I'm roaming the netherworld in search of a few new spirits to join our family of happy haunts. Supernaturally, they'll be dying to meet you when... They'll be dying to meet you when... They move in this fall. I do hope you'll hurry back. Until then, yours in eternity, Master Gracie, your ghost host. So that's kind of a shame that that's closed. But I thought you might like to know that he's out there looking for more ghosts. So maybe we'll have more than 999. All right, keep up the good work. Bye. Aloha, Lou. This is Joel over here in Honolulu, Coconut Wireless on the DPN forums. Just got back from Hong Kong and Tokyo Disneyland and had a chance to listen to your June 24th 
show dealing with the Communicore in your Epcot retrospective. And as a former cast member, a couple little stories of the Communicores when I worked there is uh, I actually got paid overtime one day to sit there by the Epcot outreach and do a traffic survey with about four or five other people. We just sat there and watched people as they entered the building and how they exited the building and clicked away when they came in my door. In a particular area, I clicked once. If they went down certain stairs to the Epcot Outreach, clicked uh, another one. If they came out the far side of Epcot Outreach, somebody else clicked it. And we just kept a traffic flow over every 15-minute period. We had to write down how many people came through that area so they could do traffic flow studies looking at retail. And sure enough, uh, not too uh, much later, there were all sorts of little items that showed up there that people could buy. And then also the... Communicore was designed to have the main gift shop for the park, as you mentioned, the Centurium. And they were having a problem because the little shop underneath Spaceship Earth was getting all this traffic. They could not keep the place stopped. It was crowded, and they were having a big problem. They couldn't figure it out because they, here they had this huge Communicore uh, building uh, with the Centurion in there, and people weren't buying. And so when I was there during the summer of 86, what they did is they put up a little sign right there at the beginning of the Fountain of Nations. So if you were exiting from World Showcase, you saw the sign said, exit this way. And what it did is it drove the people through the Communicore and then out the other side, because otherwise what they were doing is they were walking straight up by the Fountain of Nations and bypassing the whole shopping area that they had set up there and shopping underneath Spaceship Earth. Well, the sales rose dramatically during those times when they put the sign up and redirected the traffic through because, again, they know that the biggest place you want to be is on the right-hand side of an exiting pattern to get people to spend, and that's why the shop under Spaceship Earth was doing so much. So while I was there, they had started construction of a little extension that came out into the main pathway that allowed people to get into the Centurium to do some shopping. And uh, let's see, I left there in August of 86, and then I went back down in December of 86, and that little extension, that little nub that they had put out, was able to capture enough traffic. And the story that I got is that basically the place paid for itself uh, within just a week or two of opening that that extension and the cost of it through the increase of sales of the people that it was doing. And so that was part of it. And then lastly is I was back at Disney World for the first time in 17 years last August, and I'm walking through the Communicore, and I looked down at the carpet, and I took a picture of it, and it's the same exact carpet with the Communicore symbols that they established when Epcot opened, still there, still in place. And it's like, oh, yes, old Epcot. I wish it was still there the way uh, it was. You know, uh, change is inevitable, but I think they've kind of gone in the wrong direction with the whole future world thing. But... Um, you know, th th that symbol just brought back a lot of memories because I had uh, a number of friends and I had to walk through there just about every day going back and forth between there and the land pavilion. So enjoy the show. Some extra info for you. Take care and aloha. 